HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. No, sorry, take two. This program has been sponsored by the Hearst Ranch. At Hearst Ranch, ranch manager Cliff Garrison describes their philosophy. Raising cattle on grass is both an ancient practice and one that is standard in much of the modern world. Sometimes the old ways are the right ways. We believe that our methodology is the right one for us. For more information on their premium grass-fed beef, visit HearstRanch.com. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is Greenhorn Radio. Radio by young farmers, for young farmers, about young farmers, uh, in the team of young farmers. I am joined by Bob St. Peter from Maine, in Cedric, Maine, down east. Are you there, Bob? I'm here, Severin. Hello. You're here to talk loud because sometimes it's hard to hear. Okay. So our topic for today is food sovereignty and how community self-reliance and teamwork play into a more resilient agricultural economy. Could you tell us just a little bit about down east Maine, Bob? What's what's the land like where it hits the ocean? Well, uh, in some places it's quite rocky. Uh, we have a, a lot of uh, native uh, blueberries, blueberry ground, particularly as you head further down east, uh, north and, and east of where we are, which ironically is called down east, but that's, that's just the way it goes. Uh, where I live uh, in uh, western Hancock County, we have patches of some, some really good soil. Uh, we have patches of some very excellent soil. Uh, there's a particular corridor uh, that runs into that runs into Blue Hill, uh, and that has been actively preserved and conserved by local land trusts and farming organizations. And there's a, a number of our more prosperous farms are up on up on that ridge uh, and doing very well. Uh, we have you know lots of lots of uh, woodlands and forest, and you know, this is a place where you can be at the ocean. Uh, one minute and in the in the deep forest within an hour, you know. So we've got a a very unique uh, ecosystem here, um, and it's it's a beautiful place to live and and farm. And you've been there farming for how long? Or did was farming first, or did you start in organizing? 
Well, they actually kind of co-evolved. Um, I, uh, I spent three summers after high school working in the area and, uh, and ended up coming back uh, through a different, a different route uh, in my mid-20s. And I've been here for about 11 years now, uh, bouncing around different areas of different towns in the community, trying to find a, a permanent spot. Um, but I, uh, you know, I started when we moved here, uh, had a little garden, and that garden has grown every year since. And now I farm about uh, three, four acres. I've got some animals, uh, raised some, some crops. I've started a, a small seed farm um, that keeps me pretty busy. So I've been, you know, kind of the activism, I think, and the, and the, the, the organizing work co-evolved with the farming uh, in part because my desire to be a, farm, to be a farmer and, uh, and live off the land has necessitated being involved in, in the organizing and, and the political work that needs to happen to make it so more of us can do that work. I'm sorry, I keep pushing mute so that it will be nice and quiet. Um, so in that sense, you're part of this tribe of people that I get to hang out with a lot who are hybrid farmer organizers mm -hmm. facilitating either rebuilding or the building of a new economy uh, inside the shell of the old one and, and thinking in those terms. What are, the, what are the ways in which your community is working together? Uh, in unusual ways? Well, uh, I think in, in the most un unusual way would be on the organizing side of things. Uh, you know, the, the farmers supporting each other, the young farmers helping each other out, you know, that all goes on here, and that goes on in a lot of communities, and uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a necessity, really, for us, for us to make it. We've got to help each other out. Um, but out of those relationships has has formed a really cohesive group of, of people who, who are looking at, at our local food economy, our local food system, uh, as a place of a lot of opportunity economically, socially, culturally, uh, and we are actively working on putting pieces back together, looking at, uh, at uh, co-ops for farm inputs like grain uh, and hay, uh, looking at ways that we can uh, help each other market market products that we sell uh, through local buying clubs, through local businesses, uh, and we're also uh, dealing with some of the some of the regulatory issues facing small farmers, and, and particularly those of us who are trying to do small, diverse farming, um, doing on-farm processing, doing on-farm value-added, uh, whether that's meat or dairy uh, or prepared foods. And we're not having we're having some difficulty. Uh, I guess that would be a bit of an understatement uh, with our state Department of Agriculture on some of these some of these issues. And we've had differences of of opinion on what are scale appropriate rules and regulations, and have really met some significant resistance from our state Department of Agriculture. And <clears throat> uh, after after the Department of Agriculture uh, drafted rules for an on-farm poultry processing exemption that banned outdoor open-air processing, we decided as a, as a community here um, to, to pass some of our own local rules and regulations 
uh, regarding regarding the direct sale of, of farm products and food products in our community. So back in back in uh, March, my town uh, passed the local food and community self-governance ordinance, which is a municipal ordinance that exempts direct sales from state and federal license and inspection requirements. Um, that exemption extends to community suppers, bake sales, um, you know, grain suppers, church suppers, those sorts of things, where people are preparing foods in their home and bringing them for sale as part of a benefit or as part of a, a fundraiser of some kind. Uh, and so my town did that in March. Um, four, four towns or other towns, excuse me, in Maine have, have since passed that ordinance. Uh, it looks like there are other towns um, in Maine where this is going to be coming up for for a vote at their town meeting later this year. Uh, and in November, uh, one of our farmers in, a, in an ordinance-protected town of Blue Hill, a man named Dan Brown, uh, was sued by the state of Maine for operating a retail food establishment, meaning a farm stand, uh, and selling milk without proper licenses. So this is working its way through the courts. Um, the state has has told us that this is not a this is not a uh, a direct challenge to the ordinance because they don't believe that the ordinance is valid and that state law preempts the municipal authority to create such ordinances, and so they're going after Dan um, personally. But but those of us behind or involved in the ordinance effort understand that that if Dan is required to get licenses, then all the rest of us are required to get licenses and. And therefore, this is a direct challenge to to our ordinance and our municipal authority. So, so obviously, milk is a more controversial uh, product than, say, bread. Um, but what's what's at stake in terms of the rights of communities to to be in charge of their own uh, regulatory framework? What? What what's the kind of political context of a more decentralized regulatory framework? Well, yeah, you know, what uh, what we included in our in our ordinance really is the way that that rural communities have been feeding themselves for a very very long time. Um, you know, people producing food on their farm, whether it's milk or meat or vegetables, and offering for sale to their neighbors, to their community, through their farm stand or through a farmer's market. Or through local businesses, uh, and that you know, that's an, an important part of the local economy. And the money that get the wealth that gets created on the farm or in the farmhouse kitchen, um, and that stays in the community, um, is really um, uh, an important part of, of having having a thriving local economy. Uh, so the ability to be able to produce and sell in your community and trade goods and services is really important. Uh, and and that ec- you know that economic activity then serves to you know the broader purpose of of cohesing or I don't know if that's a word but bringing together the community um, socially and you know um, in times of need and, and all and all the rest. So for us, you know, we look at what we had as a community, say 60, 70, 80 years ago, when we had. Uh, you know, a number of dairy farms. We had a creamery in the county. We had um, a milling. We had we had grist mills here. Uh, we had, you know, more fish processing facilities. And most of this, if not all of this, is now gone. 
and it's been replaced with 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 stores that are that's full of food that is imported from all around the world that comes in our communities uh, as a result of of uh, of a global economy that that suppresses prices, pushes down the price of food, uh, and essentially undercuts us here in our community, trying to sell to our neighbors. So, so the small to, farms, yeah. the small farms in your community are not selling to supermarkets, and the supermarket economy is therefore uh, been decoupled from the local food production economy. By and large, yeah. You know, I, I was just having this conversation an hour ago with with somebody who works on fisheries issues, and we we're both complaining that in our in our local community, where we have farms and we have fisheries, how little local food is available in the local grocery stores, and particularly all these little um, gas station convenience stores that we have dotted all over our rural landscape. You know, these little rural bodegas where you can stop in and get some fast food or uh, you know, a bag of chips and maybe an apple or something if they're selling it. Um, but yeah, for the for for the most part, as you said, those two economies have been decoupled, and they, uh, with the exception of a, you know a few you know, seasonal uh, exceptions, that's pretty much how it works. Is that the farm economy operates through different channels than the grocery store economy. And well, and the supermarket nature. economy is closely linked to the super, the super duper, super agribusiness economy. And I, you're, you know, you, you're on YouTube, famous now, for having stood outside of the hearing on Tuesday. Let's see, no, that's last Tuesday, um, for bringing up another important topic, and that is the rules of the game in the super, the super duper agribusiness world. Again not uh, a harmonious coexistence with the needs of small farmers. Could you tell us about that? Well, yeah. You know, over the last 60, 70 years, uh, as, as the production capacity has been undermined in our communities, there has been a, a co-evolving regulatory framework that has served to take more power from local communities and place it in further and further away institutions. Um, you know, so for us, as an example, when we go to the State Department of Agriculture and ask for uh, you know, a, a rule that allows us to, to process a few hundred chickens in our backyards, open air, and sell it, they tell us that they, they can't do that for us because the USDA controls the funding for Maine's meat inspection program and they're concerned that if we if we allow rules that they interpret to be uh, less strict than what the USDA requires, and the USDA will will take will stop sending Maine that money, and they'll even go so far as to shut down Maine's meat inspection program, and they've said this publicly. You know, so so when we go to our Department of Agriculture and ask you know, for them to you know, stand up for our interests as small farmers, they tell us. We can't. It happens at the USDA. And I've been to the USDA, and I've been to meetings at the USDA, and it's a very large facility with lots of different people, and you don't have the same kind of access that you do in your state Department of Agriculture. You know, so it becomes very difficult to, to advocate for scale-appropriate regulations outside of, um, I guess in our case, outside of our own communities. 
so in that sense, the, the context, the scale of the, of the institution has a lot to do with how receptive it is, how reactive it can be to the needs of its constituents. And furthermore, that especially within the USDA, there are conflicting uh, views on, you know, the direction of American agriculture. And so yeah. while on one hand we hear that we need 100,000 new farmers, uh, there are simultaneous to that moves being made and decisions being taken that, uh, well, have a lot to do with supporting a, a kind of a kind of production system that's reducing the numbers of new farm enterprises and, in fact, serving to concentrate farm uh, farm productions, uh, farm businesses. Uh, in an effort to increase exports and uh, succeed in that in that sphere, right. tell me about the kind that, of protection that is needed uh, that, that you that you were discussing when you when you when you drove all the way down to New York City. What were you looking for? Well, when I went there, I was I was there as a as a member of of two of the plaintiff organizations, Mosca and Fedco Seeds, also as a seed grower. Um, and as as a proponent of of food sovereignty and and reducing the the influence of corporations like Monsanto over the rule making system, um, you know what's you know we have to we're at a point where where those of us who are left, you know either those of us who are left or those of us who you know the young farmers who feel like you know our society has sold us a bill of goods. And that the American dream is not really what we were promised, and that a farm life, uh, you know, rural life, a life as a food producer is actually a really good life. And you know, there there aren't a whole lot of us uh, in that boat yet, and there are fewer, I think, who are who are hanging on, trying to make it and pass it on to their kids. That you know, we're going to have to figure out a way to to re to reverse the trend uh, of authority from our communities. And so and whether that community, in my case, is a municipality, or whether that community is a neighborhood, or whether that, you know, is, is a county, um, you know, the places where we interact with each other are the places where we need to build strength as a community so that we can reverse this trend. Because the trend has been to really do away with us. And that, you know, that's been the unfortunate consequence of, of U.S. agricultural policy, um, you know, stated very explicitly in the early 70s as get big or get out. Uh, you know, a lot of people got big, a lot more got out. And so in order to reverse the, the flow of power through the institutions, which are coming you know, from the corporations and from their lobbyists, who then, you know, impress upon uh, legislators to write rules that work for them. You know, we, so we have to figure out what it is we want to be able to articulate it and to be able to do that in places where we can be free, literally free from, from corporate intervention. Like in my town meeting in Maine, a multinational corporation, a lobbyist from, from one of those corporations is not allowed to speak at my meeting, at our town meeting, because this is a matter for our town. There's no other place that I know of uh, that that has that kind of power. We go to we go to the state legislature. 
um, to testify before the ag hearing, and there are lobbyists from Monsanto or Dow or depending on whatever the issue is. And they're there um, essentially on equal footing with the rest of us. And I don't personally don't think that's fair. So, you know, I think as communities we've got to figure out our answers to our problems and and I think communities having these discussions, you know, this is where we're really going to be able to, be able to articulate a vision for where we want to go. And then it's a matter of pushing on the on the mechanisms that, that make it happen from the bottom up. Ah. Uh. So you're talking some some strong self-determination here. Those who are listening may have questions about how they could get involved in uh, Food for Maine's future and, or, uh, and events that you may be leading, workshops, this continuing action in the court case. Uh, give us some leads on where to start clicking if we're interested to become at least on the mailing list of the, the activities you're involved with. Yeah, well, you can start it at Food for Maine's Futures website, and that's savingseeds.wordpress.com. Uh, you can download the most recent issue of Saving Seeds, which is a, a newspaper that we that we print two, three times a year. It has a lot of background information uh, on the lawsuit regarding Dan Brown and the local food ordinance uh, that five main towns have passed. Uh, if you're on Facebook, and I imagine most of your listeners are, we have a We Are Farmer Brown page where there's a running dialogue uh, with people who are involved in, in the political organizing and the community organizing aspect of all this. A lot of really good information flowing through there. Uh, Food for Maine's Future also has a Facebook page, and we have a lot of postings uh, from the work we're doing and, and support for our allies uh, and our partner organizations. Uh, so those are, those are three places. Uh, and one other website, localfoodlocalrules.org. Uh, is a is a is a website that was set up to uh, hold and and uh, compile a lot of the the background information um, as well with the Farmer Brown lawsuit. So the the upcoming thank you Bob very much. The upcoming events in Greenhorn's world are on Saturday this coming Saturday, February 11th. Uh, at the Brower Center in Berkeley, California, we'll be screening the first two episodes of my new film series, which are web films, short 10-minute films on um, the topic of land opportunity and cracking the nut uh, around changing the system. Practical way to come and get involved is to join us at 5... Oh, I guess there's drinks at 4 p.m., the Brower Center, you can read about it at the Brower Center or online at our blog. Uh, there's so many events scheduled this year, it would be terrible for me to start listing them off. So I hope that you are already on our listserv and you'll get the e-blast today to write down on your calendar all the things and start getting your own events planning uh, for this coming season. This February is always a crazy month. So took up your tail and 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 thank you all. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Severin. <laughs>